chapter 13 tonight, Acts chapter 13, thank you so much for that uh, song there, and Acts 13 as we're getting through, actually we've been doing real good the last two Sunday nights, we went through a full chapter, tonight we're going to do two verses, so we're slowing down a little bit, but we're entering a new section of the book of Acts, part one, uh, if you wanted to part out Acts into four sections, part one is the introduction, that is chapter one. And then part two is the founding emphasis with the primary character being Simon Peter, and that is uh, chapters two through five. Then the forward emphasis, that's with the uh, main character of Stephen, that is chapters six through 12. And tonight we begin the fourth section of Acts, the foreign emphasis, where the primary, uh, the, the main character is Paul. And this is going to be chapters 13 through chapter 28. And so we begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, which is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. The church at Antioch sent its two best men here, uh, to the mission field. And we start by looking at the godly elders or the leaders here at Antioch. Uh, these men were not novices. They were not new converts. They were not just uh, one of those, you know, those new type commerce that are fired up with enthusiasm that you have in young believers. Oh, by the way, I love that. I love the excitement of new believers and, uh, and uh, that should stay with us. But so sadly, many times it doesn't. As we live the Christian life, that seems to sometimes uh, that fire goes out. These were not men that had come forward at a high-pressure altar call uh, at, at a tent meeting. Uh, these were men who had already labored in the Antioch church. They had seen souls saved there. Their ministry had already been evidenced. They had proved themselves to be gifted evangelists. They had demonstrated their ability to teach. So under their ministry there at, the, uh, at, at Antioch, the church had grown. Everyone knew them. They were loved and respected. They were the two best men, or these were the best men that the Antioch church had. Now, the lesson that we see here is that God does not call only excited people. God calls faithful people. And we talked about this in discipleship tonight with, the, with talking about the will of God, the specific will and the general will. And we're all fired up sometimes about finding God's specific will for us, but we find that by going through the general will, by being faithful first. God calls faithful people. I like Elisha. When Elijah found Elisha, remember what Elisha was doing? He was sitting on the couch waiting for the call, remember? No, he wasn't. He was out plowing with all his oxen. He was at work. He was doing something. And God called him. God calls busy people. God calls faithful people. To send these men to the mission field would be a serious loss to the church. They would be sorely missed. But uh, they, that, that's what often happens in church work. <clears throat> now, these men were not dropouts from business that would fail at everything else, and so they went to the mission field. By the way, tonight's message is missions launched as the missions were began here. And uh, we're, we're seeing the beginning of really what turned out to be modern-day missions, and we'll see some of the things that we can compare there. But these were five giants of the faith. They were men that spoke with authority from God. They were the backbone of this local church. And uh, the, these, so I want to look at these five men that we find here in verses 1 and 2 uh, very quickly. Uh, they, uh, four of them 
were Hellenists. Those are Jews that were born outside of the Holy Land. Uh, they spoke Gentile languages. They would have been uh, very familiar with the uh, secular uh, society of that day. Uh, they were familiar with the philosophies and the religions and the politics, the aspirations of the people that they would minister to. But they were far more open than the Jews were of the homeland. And we see this throughout the book of Acts and then the Pauline epistles too, that the Jews from the homeland were much slower to accept the Gentiles and to put aside Judaism than the Hellenists were. Barnabas was a Cypriot. Simeon was an African, uh, probably from Cyrene, probably the North African coast. Lucius was a Cyrenian, and Saul came from Tarsus. Only Menaean had been brought up in the Holy Land, and he not as a believer. Now, we need to look at these godly leaders here, and the Bible gives us only a note or two about a few of them, enough to stimulate our interest. Now, I just want to forewarn you tonight, a little bit of what I say will be some speculation, but it is, uh, it's speculation based on high probability uh, of other things that we see in the Bible. We hear much about Barnabas and Saul, but these other three are never heard of again. After this verse, you don't hear about them again in Scripture. But it does not matter how much we know about them. What matters is that heaven does know them. Amen? God knows their name. God knows their accomplishments. And it really doesn't matter if we don't know everything they, they accomplished from this point on. But let's look at the five men and what we can learn from them. First, we have Brother Barnabas. He reminds us of the sweetness of the Lord Jesus. We already met Barnabas several times, and we uh, have been told that he was a good man. Uh, he was a kind man. Uh, people would be willing to die for him. He was not only a good man, he was full of compassion, and he was full of the Holy Ghost. He was a well-to-do Levite who we first met when he uh, sold off some property that he owned in the island of Cyprus, and he gave that money to the church. The name Barnabas was given to him by the apostles as a title of honor. It can mean son of consolation, son of encouragement, son of exhortation. I know we asked this question back when we talked about Barnabas, but it's a good thing to, to just explore. If the rest of us in here had to pick a name for you, what would we pick? What would we pick to be your name based on your actions? Something to think about, isn't it? We'd want a good name like Son of Encouragement or of Consolation. It was Barnabas who introduced Saul to the apostles in Jerusalem when the church was still afraid of him. Now, uh, we, and we talked about this at length, but just imagine Saul who's killing Christians and, and putting them in prison and, and torturing them, and suddenly he gets saved. Uh, the church wasn't too eager to bring him into their fellowship. It was Barnabas who took Saul, put his name on the line. It was Barnabas who put his arm around Saul. Hey, listen, we need to hear him out. This is the real deal. God's done a work in his heart. Uh, Barnabas has stood as a true friend to Saul. It was his prestige with the apostles that gave Saul's salvation claim credibility. So, he did this for Saul. The church finally let down their guard. They finally accepted Saul into the fellowship. But that's the kind of man that Barnabas was. Barnabas was an encourager. Uh, he reminds us of the sweetness of the Lord Jesus. He was a man with a kind and loving disposition. Like Jesus, the Bible says that he went about doing good. This was the kind of person that you would want on a deacon board or in a church, uh, any church, 
should desire to have a man like Barnabas. Uh, he was addicted to good works. He was given to visiting the sick and helping the poor. He was willing to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. When it comes to serving in the church, we need Barnabases. Amen? Now, what kind of Christian are you? Are you a Barnabas type? Are you one that encourages others to do more, to be more? <clears throat> I encourage you to be an encourager. William A. Ward said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Uh, ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will not forget you. And you will not be forgotten if you encourage someone today. We all need encouragement. We all love encouragement. Do you know Abraham Lincoln, perhaps the most attacked president by the press until the one we have today, uh, he was uh, attacked viciously by the press. He carried in his wallet newspaper clippings that talked about him being a great leader. Why? Because he needed the encouragement. We all need encouragement. No matter who we are, we need encouragement. Be an encourager. Then there is Brother Simon Niger. He reminds us of the sufferings of Jesus. But who was this man? Here's where we get a little speculation, but I think we can put, pick to, uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, put together some verses and see who he might have been. His real name is Simeon, but he was given the Latin nickname Niger, suggests that he was a black man. At this point, we only have some speculation because he may very well have been Simeon, uh, Simon the Cyrenian, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Let me tie these two together uh, because he was, that, by the way, in that chapter, he was the man who carried the cross for Jesus. Simon the Cyrenian, uh, the Bible tells us in that verse that he's the father of, uh, of Alexander and Rufus. These two boys apparently were well known when Mark wrote his gospel and uh, the, when writing to the Romans later, Paul mentions Rufus, who was, he said, chosen in the Lord. Uh, he speaks of Rufus's mother as being his mother and mine. So she was very close to Paul. Uh, she was one of his hundred mothers in Christ or a thousand mothers in Christ, the different people that he uh, dealt with. And so Paul's reference to his mother would imply that while he was in Antioch, he stayed in that home. So then Simon Niger was quite possibly the man who carried the cross of Christ. Can you imagine that? Here we find him in Acts, if, if he in fact is. He would remind us of the sufferings of the Lord. If he was that man, can you imagine him on a Sunday night testimony night? <laughs> yeah, I carried his cross. Wow, he would never tell tire of telling that story, would he? Telling that, uh, he probably wrote a book. It was probably on the Jerusalem Times best-selling list for a long time. He had been coming to Jerusalem, minding his own business. He was then overtaken by a mob that was heading for Calvary. In the middle of that shouting, jeering crowd, uh, he saw a man that was being harried by the Roman soldiers, a man that was being cursed at by Jewish leaders, a man that was being wept over by women folk around him, and what a man he was. His face was battered. It was bruised outside uh, to no recognition. Uh, he had evidently been scourged and whipped and abused. He was staggering along beneath the weight of a cross. The soldiers are looking around for someone to help. And so they pressed this man, Simon the Cyrene, Cyrene, into service. They seized him. They compelled him to carry the cross for Jesus Christ. Man, Simon would tell of the reluctance 
and the shame he felt carrying a cross for this criminal up to Calvary. Then he would tell how he stayed to watch. He would tell how this man at Calvary won his heart, how he had become a Christian, and now he himself was crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Every church needs a Simon Niger as a leader in the church, a man who has been to Calvary, a man whose vision is the vision of Christ and him crucified, a man who, having carried the cross for Christ, would find every other burden light. Each one of us ought to use now, we don't have a testimony like Simon Niger would if, that, if he, in fact, is the man who carried the cross. But you guys all and I have a testimony. We all have a testimony we help somebody with. Uh, you, can, you, you ought to use your testimony to be a help to others. Um, and so Simon Niger reminds us of the suffering of Christ. And use your testimony. You see somebody defeated? Listen, you've been defeated at times. Help them. Lift them up. And uh, let's be that person. Barnabas reminds us of the sweetness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Niger reminds us of the sufferings of Jesus. And then there was Brother Lucius of Cyrene. He reminds us of the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. Christ is always in control. We are, Christ is never ruled by his circumstances. They are all ruled by him. Remember in John 4.4, 4, he must needs go through Samaria. Why? to meet a woman at the well. He must needs go to Jerusalem. Why? To fulfill all that the prophets had written. Jesus Christ did what he needed to do. He is always in control. They could bring him the hardest cases. None were too hard for him. He could speak to the fish, and they would swim by the hundreds into Peter's nets. He could speak to the wind and the waves, and they would immediately calm and hush. Uh, he could speak to the water, and it would turn into wine. But you take the case here of Lucius of Cyrene. Look who he's next to in the list. Uh, that Sim Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene. They are together here. Uh, could, it looks like he also was from Cyrene. And it, it again, uh, some speculation here. But could it be that Simon of Cyrene is going home after Calvary telling everybody he knows about Jesus? It can't be proved, but it's a great thought that this would be one of the men he led to Christ, this man Lucius. Now, some have linked this Lucius to, with that, uh, but Paul talks about in Romans 16, 21, Lucius, my kinsman, which would mean they were uh, related. But we can't prove that connection. But if you look at these men, Simon Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Saul of Tarsus, related or not, we look at them, saved in different places, saved at different times, brought together by different routes to Antioch, linked together by the common cause of Christ, and it is an example of the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love to think of this, just these different men, <coughs> different backgrounds, different places. It's just like our church. You've got different people uh, from all over. I mean, you have uh, <coughs> some people that are from down south, you have some people that are from here, you have some people, God forbid, from Minnesota, and you have, you see, all these different people from everywhere, and we are uh, together for the common cause of Christ. Barnabas, the sweetness of the Lord Jesus, Simon Niger, the sufferings, Lucius, the sovereignty, and then we have Menaean, he reminds us of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's described here as the foster brother, uh, the Bible uses the word syntrophos, of Herod the Tetrarch. The title Syntrophos, which means foster brother, 
was given to boys who were the same age as the royal prince and raised with them at court. Manan had just been had been just such a boy. He had been brought up with Herod, uh, one who stole Herodias from her husband, the one who murdered John the Baptist, the one who mocked Jesus. This is the Herod that he was brought up with. Uh, he's also known as Herod Antipas. He is one of the sons of Herod the Great. And Manan and Herod went to school together. They played together. They studied together. They laughed together. <clears throat> but at some point, Manan became a believer while Herod became a beast. Manan became a minister while Herod became a murderer. Uh, Manan found salvation in the arms of Jesus. Herod found shame in the arms of Herodias. But look at Manan. Look at what he was saved from. Look at what he was saved for. He became one of God's choicest saints, a leader at the church here in Antioch. And that, my friend, is what salvation can do for you. Can I remind you today what Christ saved you from? If you're in here tonight and you're saved, what did Christ save you from? Well, you say, preacher, you might have the same testimony as myself. I saved at 10 years old. I had not yet dealt drugs. I had not knocked over any banks. I had not smoked or drank or anything of those things. Uh, I was only 10. But it's not only the sin that I was involved in, which I wasn't involved in many hard sins, if you understand what I'm saying, but what he kept me from. Uh, thank God I've never uh, drank alcohol. Thank God I've never taken drugs. I've never uh, been addicted to any of those things, and, because, and that's because I'm a Christian. I'm saved. God has saved me from, maybe not out of those things, but from those things, and every single one of us. What has God saved you from? Many of you, he saved you out of those things. Praise the Lord for that. Never forget what you've been saved from. God did not save you simply to keep you out of hell. Not a bad reason to get saved, but that's not the only reason God saved you. He saved you for a work, 2 Corinthians 5.18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled you to him through salvation and then he gives you the ministry to reconcile others to him as well. You're in the ministry, friend. He's given you a work to do. We are saved. We ought to be willing to be put to work. Manan reminds us of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Barnabas reminds us of the sweetness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Niger reminds us of the sufferings of Christ. Lucius reminds us of the sovereignty of Christ. And then finally, we see Brother Saul. He reminds us of the service of Jesus Christ. He was a man with all the gifts. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. Every one of his talents was used for the Lord Jesus Christ. He dedicated to Christ his great intellectual powers, his tireless energy, his world vision, his roots in the three worlds of his day, Jewish, Roman, and Greek. Saul had all those. Now, now, if we look back, there's no way we could count all the people Saul, uh, Paul then led to Christ personally, how many churches he planted, how many homes he saved, how many millions and millions of people have been saved down through the ages because of his writings. He was a man who reminds us of the service of the Lord Jesus. Again, it's a challenge to each of us to get involved in serving God. Each and every one of you ought to have some kind of service you're involved in in serving the Lord. Uh, do something, uh, no matter how little or how big it is, get involved for God. Most people wish to serve God in an advisory capacity. <laughs> We've got a lot of those. 
tell us how to tell God how he ought to do things. And we ought to serve as willing servants. So this list is an impressive list. I know that that's just how far we've gotten tonight, just these men here, but it's an impressive list. We need willing servants. This is the type of men we need in every church. Let me talk a little bit, and I'll close with this idea of service. Service. Saul reminds us of the service of Christ. Self-righteous service versus true service. Because people are involved in both today. If you're taking notes, this would be a great uh, thing to take notes of. If you want to cheat, I can print it off for you later. This is a great list, though, for us to remind ourselves about. Self-righteous service versus true service. A lot of people are involved in self-righteous service. Uh, and let and, uh, me give the difference here. I'm going to give you the difference between the two. Self-righteous service comes through human effort. True service comes from a relationship with the Lord and dependence on Him. If you are going to serve through your own power and for your own purposes, it will be through your efforts. And it won't, be as, it won't be near as impactful as serving with the Lord's uh, depending on Him. Self-righteous service is impressed with the big deal. We want the big things. Self-righteous service is not interested in the small things. Preacher, I want to do something around the church. All right, here's a toilet brush. Here's a toilet cleaner. That's not what I was talking about. You understand what I'm saying? There's a, that's a, a lot of people don't want to do those kind of things. They want to do big things. True service finds it impossible to even distinguish between small and large service. They just want to get busy and serve God. There's a lot of things that are done, even in this ministry, nobody ever knows about. It's just people behind the scenes being faithful. That's true service. Self-righteous service requires external awards and rewards. Self-righteous service has got to be recognized. You better put my name uh, in the bulletin that I did that, or you mentioned from the pulpit. I want to be recognized. Where true service is more concerned with eternal rewards. Self-righteous service is highly concerned with results. True service uh, just simply is about doing the work, leaving the results up to God. I'll give you an example here. Self-righteous service would not last long in a bus ministry because the bus ministry is a drain of finances for the church. It's a drain of energies for those involved in it, and it doesn't seem often like there's much of a payoff. You work with kids, you know, it's an age-old story. Now, there are very few. Sometimes it does, kids come through it, but often you have kids that are they're on fire for God. They love to come to church, but, you know, we, the world has them for hundreds of hours in a week, and we get them for one, and we, there's only so much you can do, and you see often losing them in their teenage years uh, to things like dating and jobs and those other things. So if you're looking for purely results, you probably won't get involved in something like the bus ministry. However... True service will do the work and let God take care of the results because you don't know and I don't know what we're planting in those children and just letting, letting God use that. So self-righteous service is, uh, picks and chooses who to serve. This is a big one. Self-righteous service will only really serve those people and in those areas that benefit self, you. True service is not selective in its ministry. Self-righteous service is affected by the moods and whims. We'll serve if we feel like it. We go to church if we feel like it. We do this if we feel like it. If we don't, well, then we won't. True service continues faithfully, whether we feel like it or not, not because of our emotions, but because there's a need there, and we're going to continue to do it. That's true service. True service 
I mean, sorry, self-righteous service is temporary. True service is a lifestyle choice. You're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Self-righteous service is without sensitivity. Here's a big one too. Insisting on meeting the need even if it would be destructive. Sometimes as a child of God and is serving, if we have sensitive hearts, we realize there's a time we step back uh, sometimes and true service will do that. True service can hold back if the need be there. Self-righteous service fractures the feeling of community because it's about self. So it often even hurts the church. Uh, taking somebody that might be bossy or, or, uh, or, or vindictive about their service area. True service, on the other hand, builds community. We need to work together. Amen? We need to work together. You know, even a banana, when it leaves the bunch, gets skinned? Think about it. Work together. Church members. Church members can accomplish collectively what individuals cannot. We can't do, we, we have to, we, we can do so much more. What is the age old, every time we used to be involved in any kind of labor at home, dad would always, many hands make light work, and uh, grew up with that all the time, and that's true in church work too, many hands make light work. I'm simply saying tonight, we need to be a servant. You know an airplane, this is fascinating to me, an airplane is a machine consists that, that is basically made up of hundreds of non-flying parts. Take any part off an airplane, it ain't going to fly. The starter, the, the uh, panels, the side panels, the windows, the propeller by itself, it is not going to fly. But you put all those pieces together and it'll fly. Isn't that something? That's what the church needs too as well. We need to work together and uh, we need to be a servant. General William Booth, he was the founder of the Salvation Army, uh, when he was an old man, was invited to address one of their conventions. When it was determined that he would be unable to attend, they asked him to send a greeting that they would then read publicly as his speech. So this is what he sent. To the delegates of the Salvation Army Convention, others signed General William Booth. That was his speech. Others. That's what we ought to be about, isn't it? Others. Not ourselves, others. True service does not focus on ourselves. True service looks outward and looks at others. What am I accomplishing, Pastor? What's the result? Well, sometimes you won't see it with the naked eye. You won't see it even in your lifetime. Keep on doing the Lord's work. I think of the, the even so faithfully doing uh, children's church. And, you know, what's going to be the result of that? They have no, there's no way they can ever know what that'll mean, uh, you, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, their work that they're doing on Sunday mornings might still have an impact with kids as they remember back the things they learned and the, and the things that set their course way back in children's church. I'm just simply saying, just stay faithful and serve God and he will do much with it. So that was these men. The next week we're going to start getting...